Matthew 25. Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, what we're dealing with is the last week of Jesus' ministry. It's Tuesday. He is leaving Jerusalem, headed towards Bethany. He's had conflicts during the day with the different teachers. He's watched the offerings that were being given. He's taken time as he's left the city to cry over the city. And then his disciples make comment as they're leaving, and he's cried over the city, and because of the disaster that's coming, they say, well, wait a minute this is such a beautiful place, and they make comment about the city of Jerusalem about this Tuesday afternoon as they leave. They're looking back, if, we, if this is a scenario, they're rising, they've gone down in the valley, they can see it, and then they're starting to get up on the valley a little bit more as they come to the Mount of Olives. They look back, and this city is a fabulous city. Even as we said last week, Herod is building it so it would outlast the pyramids. He's, uh, he's been building projects for 50 years, he and his son, and so it's a beautiful, beautiful city, and they comment on this marvelous city that is not going to uh, suffer any problems. And Jesus makes the comment in Matthew 25, starting with verse 1, that he, uh, I'm sorry, 24, I keep on saying 25, 24, he says, See ye not all these things, for early I say there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. They don't understand that. They, they've seen the city being rebuilt and revitalized, and the Rome is there even protecting it. And so they may comment, you know, how, how is it possible? But they remember, <coughs> back from their, their Sabbath school days, their synagogue school days, they remember that Zechariah had said that in the last days, Jerusalem will be attacked again. It's going to be devastated. It'll almost be totally annihilated and destroyed, and the Messiah will come at the last minute. He'll come not on a white horse over the hill, but a white horse from heaven. He'll come down and he'll rescue the remnant of the people. And this would mark then the end of the world as we know it and the beginning of the kingdom of Messiah here on earth. And so they hear Jesus talking, they think he's the son of man, they think he's Messiah, and he's predicting that the city's going to be destroyed. Oh, wait a minute. If that's the case, then this must tie in with what Zechariah said. So when is the destruction going to come? Because the destruction means the end of the world, and it means the beginning of the kingdom. And so Jesus is going to respond and give them somewhat of a timeline and help them to understand. But again, I remind you, Okay, and this is a little bit of review. He is going to say things that are based upon previous prophecies. Especially there's a prophecy that in, tail, in, in, um, in length, it's from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And it's the, the previous time where somebody asked God, when is the end coming? Daniel was reading in the book of Zechariah, uh, Jeremiah. And as he's reading Jeremiah, he reads prophecies that say that the captivity of Israel will only last 70 years. Well, Daniel's been in captivity. He and the people who came with him have been in captivity for 69 years. He can add, he can figure one more year. Then God, what does that mean? After this one more year is done, does it mean you'll set up your kingdom? He talks about the idea of when righteousness will be established. And the Lord sends an angel to answer him, and the answer is given in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, and he gives Daniel a timetable. It's called the 70 weeks of Daniel, and it's a basic timetable that he says, okay, Daniel, here's, here's what's happening in the next year or two. There's going to be a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. After that, there's going to be a period of seven sevens, or 49 years. Then there's going to be a period of 62 sevens, or a total of 400 and whatever it is, 34 years. All totaled there are the 69 weeks, or 483 years. 
after those 483 years, and he says after that. Then there's going to be the coming of Messiah. Messiah will then be cut off. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And uh, then you will suffer severe persecution for a number of years. And obviously there's this gap of time built in between the 69th and the 70th week. He never gives them an idea how long that is. But he says then the 70th week will start with another treaty, another decree. It's going to be between Antichrist and Israel. And then that'll be the last seven years. And so Daniel has given all that information and he says at the end of that total of 490 years that has gaps in between, then the kingdom of earth will be established. And so uh, Jesus is going to give information based upon that. Where Jesus is, is speaking, let me back up, Jesus is speaking right at this period. In this era of right after the 483 years, Messiah comes, Messiah gets cut off, is Jerusalem will be destroyed. Well, we understand from that Jesus being cut off or sacrificed right around 28 AD, when was Jerusalem destroyed? 70 AD. So obviously there's gaps, gaps, gaps right after that 483 years. We understand the gap as being church age. And there's no problem with that because the prophecy given, the 70 weeks of Daniel, deals with the Jews. This time period, the Jews and Gentiles are in the same entity. They aren't considered separate. Jews and Gentiles all become part of the local church. This time period ends with the rapture and then that, then, it, then that time period's all done, and then we revert back to the last seven years, that is Old Testament dealing, God, God again sending his prophets, God again doing all these miracles, God again dealing with the Israelites, <coughs> and they're the focal point. So Jesus' answer that he gives, keep in mind what he's going to say here, has no reference to the church. It's the last seven years for the Jewish nation. He is uh, not talking about anything that applies to the rapture, the Bema seat. That's not involved because it's a Jewish. By the way, I forgot to mention this morning, I'll mention this morning, this is a Bema. A Bema is anything that's elevated where the authority, the judge, and the, uh, the jury, whatever, where they would stand and they would rule and they would judge. So when we talk about the Bema seat, we're talking where Jesus is elevated as the judge. Um, he talked mostly about Daniel's 70th week. That's what he's going to be referring to in, this, in, in Matthew 25. And so he gives the chronological ideas of what's going to happen. Now remember, the 70th week of Daniel goes this way. Okay, it's seven years. It has two halves, three and a half years, three and a half years. Begins with a treaty. Okay, and then in the middle, the treaty is broken, and uh, Antichrist goes after the Jews in the second half. Terrible, terrible time for Israel, called the Great Tribulation, Jacob's Trouble. Then it ends with Jesus Christ destroying Antichrist, coming from heaven, the second coming. And then what he does is he sets up his kingdom on earth. And so that all put together gives us this timeline. Now Jesus is going to talk about it, and in Matthew chapter 25, he's going to talk about the beginning of trouble, and then he says the abomination of desolation, which is when the treaty is broken, and uh, the time gets worse for the Jews, and then he says if you're on the roof, if you're in the field, run, get out of there. Why? Because then the devastation is so bad. And he talks about this time period that unless the days should be, do you remember? <coughs> shortened, what would happen? 
no flesh would survive, okay? And so that, that's the essence of what he's going to be dealing with. Jesus and his comments, okay? We looked at this last week in Matthew 24. He starts describing in verses 5, 6, 7. In verse 8, he says, these are the beginnings of the trials of, of that time period. And he talks about the delusion, the wars, the catastrophes. And he says that's just the beginning, the first three and a half years. Then he talks about what happens after that. There's going to be the, uh, the huge persecution of the Jews. You read about that 9, 10, 11. The false prophets, we read about that in verse 11 and following. We read in verse 12 about the anger of mankind and waxing cold. And the gospel, in all that darkness, verse 14, the gospel is going to be spread. And so even in darkness, there's going to be light given. And uh, Jesus then basically wraps up you know, some of his comments by just rehearsing abomination of destination, second half, you better run, 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 okay, and hide and flee. And that's where he makes the comment on verse 22 where we ended up last week. In verse 22, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be alive, left alive. But for the elect's sake, the days are shortened. He says it twice. And my question was this, is how is it that the days can be shortened when we already have specific prophecies given in days, months, years? Is he going to change what he's already predicted in Daniel, in book of Revelation, in his comments? What does he mean the days should be shortened? It could mean this. It could be this possibility. Okay? Do you remember that in the second half of the tribulation and in Daniel 11, it talks about Antichrist changing times, okay, that he might uh, affect the time calendar and try, try and change the time. Or it could mean, where it says in Revelation, in the uh, trumpet judgments, that many of the stars have fallen out of the sky and um, the, the, the uh, effect in space where even the solar day is changed. As far as the 24 hours, that's a possibility. But I think this is your better possibility. The phrase day should be shortened, the word literally means cut off, to terminate, to discontinue. Okay? So we think t short, the day should be shortened, we think time frame, because the word shortened. Literally, it has the idea, except those days were cut off. Cut off when they should be cut off. Discontinued. Unless there was some active, and it's, it has the sense more of, of um, um, inter uh, interruption done by Jesus Christ stopping it, stopping it. Except those, the day, except for the activity is cut off. Except for if Antichrist were left to go any longer, he'd destroy everything. If Satan were left to go any longer, okay, he'd destroy everything. So the word that's used doesn't necessarily have a time in mind as much as it has an act in mind. If that makes sense, that the idea here is, it is certain these days will be cut off. It is certain these days shall be stopped. There, there, is, a, there is a timeline. There is a limit to the, this is the concept. There is a limit to how much evil will be allowed to act. Does that make sense? Okay. And basically, Satan is allowed a long leash, but what about the leash? There's an end to it. There's an end. He's going to stop it. He's going to stop it. Now, the people of that time period, let's, let's pretend you and I are living in that time period. Would we almost get so discouraged that we think, 
There's no hope. I mean, there's, it's getting worse and worse. And the, the statement here is a statement of promise. It's a statement of, I will stop this. There will be an end to it, is the idea. Not necessarily in, a time, in the mind of a time concept, uh, but the idea, well, time concept, what he's already established, but the idea of a certainty that it will be ended. Uh, let's go a little bit further. Jesus, is, as he's wrapping up, we didn't talk about it, but verses 23, look at him. Verses 23 through 26, he talks a little bit more in these verses. Again, he repeats, there shall be false Christ, false prophets, shall be doing great signs, wonders, insomuch that even the elect were going to be confused. Behold, I've, so again, he's giving you the sense that that time period is far more, for, more wicked than you and I can imagine. That even saved people could get caught up in all the confusion and all the, uh, and, and by the way, isn't this true? If we hear something long enough, does it impact us? Yeah, if we're not careful. And so he's talking, and, and he's mentioned this now three times in the text about false prophets, false activity. Jesus wants us to understand this is a spiritual battle. This isn't just geopolitical. This is spiritual. There's going to be God's forces, Satan's forces. It is going to be phenomenally intense with the spiritual activity that's going on, especially in that time period. Then he makes comment about the next event. Look at the passage. The next event, as the lightning comes out of the east, I'm in verse 27, and shines to the west, so shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. For where, who, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately when? What's your Bible say? After the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars will fall, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the Son of Man. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Why are all the tribes of the earth mourning when they see Christ? Won't we be excited? I just let you into heresy, folk. I just made a heretical statement. We're not there. We're not there. Yeah, okay. But see how easy we get... Okay, we're not going to be there. So we're not going to be responding by saying, yay, here he comes, because we're, we're coming with him. Okay, yeah, yeah, we're coming with him. Okay, but the people on earth who are opposing him is the idea. They're going to be sad because all of a sudden he's coming. And in fact, what's the welcoming that they give him? They try to, they try to wipe him out as he descends, yeah. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together. Okay, here's what we got, the second coming drastically different than what's been the previous verses, if you notice. Okay, doom, gloom, and all of a sudden, here's the hope, this coming of the Son of Man. It occurs, now here's a question I have. Do, do you remember the phrase that I just read? He says, wheresoever the carcass is, what's that mean? I think there's two possibilities. You can conclude. One could be the reference to Armageddon, because remember, Battle of Armageddon is going on. Remember, how high is the blood at this point? At the back. Yeah, horse's bridle, yeah. The devastation, and Zechariah talks about it as well, the devastation of mankind at that point is phenomenal. The birds will be called to come and gather for the feast. So it could be that. Could it be, some suggest, it is also Israel's spiritual condition that they're dead at this point until they see the Messiah and then they respond. 
you know, I, I tend towards the, the, the first one that he's talking about. It's going to be a sudden coming as lightning. It's going to be brilliant. It's going to be a time when there is spiritual, uh, there's darkness, physical or spiritual darkness or both. That's not the first time this is mentioned. I give you several passages in the Old Testament that talk about right before Messiah comes in the second coming that it's going to be the sun isn't going to be shining, the moon won't be shining. It's a repeated theme in the Old Testament that there's going to be physical darkness which equates to you know, picturing what? The spiritual darkness as well. So you put it all together, physical darkness, spiritual darkness with all the delusion and the false prophets, and it's going to be a very, and by the way, when, there's, when it's total darkness, you know, I, I was watching a program that's had uh, one of these uh, National Geographic programs, and they were talking about the North Pole, where the longest day goes for weeks, and they say that people in that, what happens to them? Mentally, physically, emotionally. Yeah, does, it, does that long darkness affect people? Yeah, it gets really drab and, um, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, what's her name? Newton? Barb Newton was saying, living up in Alaska, she says, when you get into that dark time of the year where you only have an hour or two of daylight and the rest of the day is all dark, she says, it is a depressing, depressing environment. Well, that's what he's talking about. Is that type of idea, I'm sure. That it's going to be very discouraging, very depressing. So the second coming, he goes on, he says, it's going to be seen by all men. It's going to be a display of his power, and there's going to be angels with him. So in the light of, in the, I shouldn't say it that way, um, all this darkness, and then you have brilliance. You have light. He's trying to describe such a contrast. Then he makes the comment that something else that happens that is critical is verse 31. It's the regathering of the Jews. It's the Jews. Now, they've been scattered around the earth during our era, they're scattered in the end times, they're scattered again. Because remember he said, if you see, when you see this happening, you on the rooftop, you in the field, get out of there. And so they've been dispersed once again. But Israel will be regathered and brought together, verse 31, the angels will gather them from all over the earth. That is, those who are born again now are going to be brought together because Jesus is getting ready to set up his kingdom. Um, I just thought of something that is going to create more confusion, but I'll bring it out anyway. If you were to go to the book of Daniel, and Daniel gives the different dates, in the last chapter of the book of Daniel, he talks about the second coming is going to happen. And then he talks, he, so he's given us the time frame, the seven years, the 42, you know, the double the 42 months, the double of the 1260 uh, days. Then, and he talks about that, and then he says the beginning of the kingdom, and he gives days for the beginning of the kingdom. And it implies and indicates there's a 75-day gap between the second coming and the, the setting up of the kingdom. Why a gap of those days between his coming to earth and then the setting up of the counting of the thousand-year kingdom? Why would Jesus have put in there the possibility of a gap of time? <coughs> what happens during that time? Israel has to be regathered. Does the earth have to be kind of put back together? Has there been a lot of, remember, this isn't the new heaven, new earth. This is the kingdom on this earth. Does some reclamation need to be done? Has the earth been a mess? <coughs> okay. Um, does there need to be a judgment taking place here? Yeah, the sheep goat judgment of the people who have survived the tribulation. 
to determine whether they go in. We'll talk about the sheep goat judgment next week. But there's uh, things that are happening, and then the beginning of the kingdom. One of the one of the things that has to happen is Israel has to be regathered, brought back together to live in the land because their city, <coughs> New Jerusalem, or the capital city of Jerusalem is going to be the, Jerusalem will be the capital city of the world. And so this is accomplished by God, by his angels, he gathers people from all over. They come back into the promised land. <coughs> and uh, after generations of being scattered to the back end, then he makes another statement. He keep, continues in this sermon, and he is going to talk about his care. Now, keep in mind what he's been saying. Israel is going to be preserved. I will not let them be destroyed. I'm going to preserve them. This is a miracle. A mir it's a miracle of history that the Jews have even survived. How many other national groups have reached prominence, and today there's no ancestry of them? Okay, there's a lot. Okay, you don't hear people walking around saying, you know, that I am of you know, this or that of that kingdom that is still functional. Most of them, like the Roman Empire, it's kind of split up into all of Europe. We don't say, oh, we came from Rome. We don't speak that way because those empires were lost to history. But the Jews were never lost to history. They were preserved all the way through, through all the dispersions, and they'll pre be preserved all the way up to this time. It's a miracle of God. It's one of the, one of the great uh, covenant promises that God commits. That he, uh, that he fulfills. Before I get into the next verse, let's make some observations. Jesus started this whole conversation talking about a religious building. You and I are impressed by buildings, and there's nothing evil with that, but we are. <coughs> Jesus is not impressed by religious objects, buildings, or structures, but by the spirit of what takes place. Now, does that mean that we should have you know, a, a facility that is appropriate and proper? Nothing wrong with that. But running into a building doesn't make us spiritual. And Jesus is making that clear. Just because you have the building of Jerusalem. By the way, for some of us who grew up, did little objects become spiritual safety points? We called them scapulars in the church I grew up in. And if I wore this scapular, I would be protected. If I could wear it, it could keep me from getting a cold. Okay? It had this religious significance. Well, Jesus isn't impressed by these icons, these scapulars, these buildings. He's more impressed by what's going on in the spirit. And so when they're talking about the building of Jerusalem, his response is, big deal, big deal. What is more important is the heart and what's worship. He doesn't hesitate to even destroy religious ob objects that were dedicated to him. <clears throat> the temple was his. If it's not being done right, he's going he's to give up on it. The uh, no religious icons can provide personal refuge against God's decreed judgments. Let's make another statement. God has a timetable that he is working on. He has a plan in history. What's happening in history, he's in charge. It includes a period of judgment. It includes bringing people to salvation. So even in one of the biggest, worst times of all of human history, he is working with grace to see souls saved. Let's continue on. Even in the darkest days and surroundings, evangelism is possible. For you and me to say, wait a minute, people can't get saved. Pa uh, Pastor Mike is running into this. He just heard it from another preacher last week who said, I believe God isn't saving any other souls here in Georgia anymore. You should just go home to America. Souls aren't getting saved. Is it possible that even in darkness, souls can get saved? 
If they can in the tribulation, they can get saved even in our era time. One day Jesus will set up his kingdom on earth, that's a fact. Jesus will be faithful to any and all of his promises, that's a fact. He made all these promises to the Jews, he is going to be, remain faithful. By the way, if he made promises to the Jews and was faithful in fulfilling them, what does that say to you and me? What promises he made to us, he will, he will keep as well. Okay, that's an important uh, comforting thought. The Jews are God's special nation. We understand that even in the future. We know that being God's elect, they are God's elect, does not make us, we are God's elect in this time period, we are not immune from troubles and trials and problems. We know that they happen to all different groups of people. Let's continue on. God will preserve the Jews to the very end, therefore he's faithful to his words. He's the same one who said he will keep us until the very end. Now to me, that's very comforting. This to me, uh, some of you may not have done this. When I was in college, I got saved in 73. I'm going into college in 74. And so the 75, 76, I struggled with, how do I know I'm saved? Because I would, none of you did this probably, but I would you know, get really on fire for the Lord and then I'd fall back into some attitude or action. Ah, I can't be saved. And then I'd, I'd doubt again. Any of you ever battle that type of thing? Okay. This is the thought that really finally convinced me and got me uh, on the straight in the area that my salvation isn't dependent upon me living a certain way. It's not dependent upon me doing certain things. My salvation is all dependent upon Jesus Christ. We are kept by the Father, not by us. In other words, I'm not kept saved by what I do. Thank God that's true. Okay, otherwise, if, if we were the ones that kept ourselves saved, we're in trouble. We are kept in His hand. He holds us. We are kept unto, unto the end by Him. And that's just such a comforting thought. Scriptures do not contradict each other. They complement, including prophetic passages. Um, I've been going online just to see how much goofy stuff is online and I'm amazed how they take these prophecies of Daniel and they take these words of Jesus and they say, well, it doesn't mean exactly what he's saying because if he said that, then what it does mean, it is what he's saying. It, it just take it and accept it and work within the time frame and it complements each other. It's amazing how it all fits together. And that study that we talked about is a dispensational approach, uh, a study we need to get in in Sunday school one of these next quarters. Let's, let's go to the next thing he talks about. He is going to make a statement that is a really, really interesting statement in interpretation. Jump down into verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So likewise, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about something. He's going to use an illustration that everybody would understand. Now remember, in context, the coming, he's been asked about when he's going to come back, set up his kingdom. And so he's going to refer to a fig tree, which everybody, if you were there, you'd understand this. It makes perfect sense. The fig tree will start showing buds when they appear after winter, and then the leaves arrive. Okay, and so the arrival of the leaves are saying, summer's here, summer's here. Very simple. We understand that. We see that with some of our trees to some degree. That when you see this happening, you know that summer is nigh. He said, when you see these things, what's these things? Things he's just been talking about. 
the problems, the persecutions, the wars, the rumors of wars, the pestilences, the famines, when you see the abomination of desolation, then know when you see the false teachers on an exponential increase, when you see the natural disasters, then know that my coming is near. The it has to refer to his kingdom on earth. That's the topic of discussion. That's what he's talking about. So when you see all these problems, know that it is happening, that here I'm coming, I'm coming soon. I am near, I am at the door. When he says he's at the door, it means he's ready to come in. So he's referring in this passage, looking at the fig tree, and uh, what's really interesting is how this gets interpreted. The people start saying, okay, the fig tree must be Israel, and based with the next line where he says, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now we get into a whole discussion on when is he coming back, and you and I have heard some of this. The generation there is telling us when the rapture is taking place. Here's why. Here's what some of it goes. Some will say when he talks about the generation shall not pass, he is promising that in this day of prophecy, the people that he is dealing with, they will see some of this being fulfilled. Okay, he's given some pro a lot of prophecy. So he's telling, some interpret saying, okay, Peter, James, and John, you will live... And then you will see part of these things happening. Is that what he means? And here's their interpretation of it. Their interpretation is the generation is usually 40 years in a lot of thinking. The destruction of Jerusalem is 70 AD. It is right around 28, 29, 30 AD that he is speaking. So he is saying to them, Jerusalem will be destroyed, not stone upon stone will be knocked down. And so some interpret this passage was saying in 70 years, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And so they render it that idea, and then the Jews will suffer persecution, wars, and Jesus set up his kingdom after that. And this is the way some interpret. After the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Jesus set up a spiritual kingdom on earth. Satan was put away. I still don't understand. How are we living in the kingdom of God and Satan is put away right now? I don't sense Satan being put away right now. If this, is, if this is what the kingdom is like, really? Okay, but it's all spiritual, so it makes no difference. And so some will say, well, he did, he's, he's got it all in plan, and if we work hard enough and we get the world ready, and if we work in D.C. and through our Senate and President and Congress, when we get the world good enough for shape, Jesus will come back. I'm not banking on D.C., I don't know about you, for making this world a better place. Okay, so you, you've got some saying that what he was doing was predicting a time frame for those people and those only that they would see the fall of Jerusalem. That's the generation should not pass away. There are others who would say something different. They would say he was giving us living in our church age a timetable to get an idea when the rapture takes place. Here's their interpretation, okay. Um, let's accept... Seven years, right? There's got to be seven years. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years. Okay? That's the tribulation. Okay? And at the end of the seven years, what's he going to set up? The kingdom. Okay? They're living in this time frame here. They're going to die. 
And so some interpret to say he's giving people closer to the end an idea when he is going to come back in the rapture before those things take place. And so it's an indication to you and me of what's going to happen. And what the beauty of it is, and here's how it gets interpreted, is the key date is May 15th of 48. What happened May 15, 1948? Israel was reestablished as a nation. Okay? And so the idea is a generation cannot pass away and then until, you know, after a generation, then these things are going to start. So the preaching that was done in the late 1900s was what? Oh, okay, a generation, 1948. Jesus probably was going to have to come back right around 1988. That was the preaching that was done. The problem was it didn't happen. <laughs> and before he comes back, and some were saying at that time, 1988, 1988, let's back it up seven years. That means the rapture happens 1981. Okay, great for preaching back in 1978, 79, 80. But then it became lousy preaching in 1981, 82. Okay, so you had to rethink this a little bit. Here's how some of it has got rethought, is that the generation is not 40 years but what's an entire lifespan typically? 70 years. 70 years added to 1948 gives us what? 2018. 2018, these things, well, here's the problem. 2018 would be here. Got to back up seven years. It was really nice preaching until what happened? Nothing. Okay. 2011. So right now, the popular, uh, the popular misconstruing of this text is, well, what he's talking about, 2018 must be the rapture. And then all this stuff's going to happen. So you better get ready. Check it on the internet. You got some guys who are preaching this now. 2018, 2018. Now, they used to preach 1988. <laughs> so it keeps on changing because the bottom line is no man knows... Yeah, so you got different people interpreting it this way and they talk about the 40 years and last day events happening, okay? And this includes some people who are of our theological persuasion, which is called dispensationalism, in interpreting it, that sees the rapture ahead of the tribulation and so there's a lot of confusion. Here is another possible interpretation, okay, and I'm, I'm an advocate of this one personally is that this, this context, this passage about this generation pass, not passing away has to do with assurances. Has to do with assurances to his people that he's talking to. Has to do with assurance to the Jews who, who are going to uh, face a lot of this terrible, terrible time with this thought. In reality, all these prophecies are going to be fulfilled. God is going to, though, in no matter how bad it gets, is securely provide for the Jewish people. They are going to see the kingdom. The passage is referring to the Jews, what to expect in the last days before the kingdom is established, and he is saying to them, you will survive as a nation. The reason I say that is this. The word that is used, this generation is genos. 
it can be translated this nation. There's not a group of people in a time frame, but it's just a group of people. So interpreting it that way, this nation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. The nation of Israel will not cease to exist. They will survive. Now, as a political entity, they went through a period of time where they were not. But were they, as a people group, still surviving? Did they keep their religion? Did they keep their nationality, language, and identity? He sure did. And he's saying the Jews will survive. Though other nations have passed away, they are going to survive. I'm promising you. I'm telling you. I'm giving you security here. These things will happen. And you will survive. That seems to be so fitting of the context and even the wording of it that it seems the most logical. So in light of that, I think what he's talking about is saying to these people, just be aware, be sure, know that this is going to happen. Know verse 32, when you start seeing the signs, well, I'm, I'm ready to come back. Know that you're going to survive. In fact, look at verse 35 and how this fits together so much better. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but what? Doesn't that seem to fit the idea? I'm promising you, you will survive. Doesn't that seem contextually the most obvious? You know, it, we, it, it's true. It's going to happen. This, these things will happen. You will survive. It, just know. Know that this will all happen. Then he goes from a second, uh, to a second exhortation. I think verse 36 through the rest of the chapter is in light of this, what do we do? One, be assured. Number two, be prepared. Be watching. He goes, of that day and that hour knows no man, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father. And then he starts giving a lot of conversation about, hey, you got to be ready. 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 You got to be on, you know, on the ball. And he talks about as it was in the days of Noah. What do you know about the days of Noah? Well, let's look at what he says in verse 37. As the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, people before the flood were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them away, so also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. People were doing their normal things. Were people warned about the flood? Do, do you remember Methuselah? Okay, Methuselah's name literally means, it shall, uh, when, you know, when I die, it shall come, or it shall come when I die. And so the year that Methuselah dies, according to Genesis 5 and the genealogies, the year that Methuselah dies is the year that the flood started. And so they had that warning. They had Noah, preacher of righteousness, for 120 years he's warning them. Did people take heed to the warning? No. Why? They were busy doing what? Their normal affairs. Marrying, giving in marriage, doing their normal thing. You know, feeding their face, taking care of the normal items of life, and they ignored the warnings. So then when the flood comes, the flood that, was, that they were warned about, they were given a little bit of a timeline even about the flood, but they just ignored it. They just continued on. All of a sudden, they're caught off guard, and they're taken away to judgment. That is, they're taken away in, in, uh, in the flood. They're condemned, and the only ones left to survive are the believers, the eight who were on the ark. And so he says, this is the way it's going to be with the Son of Man. Now, does he give warnings? Absolutely. Has he sent prophets? Absolutely. Does he give a rough timetable? Absolutely. And what will people do? Ignore it. Ignore it. Ignore it. Will he send prophets in that time period? 
like a Moses, uh, like a Noah? Will he send other prophets who will be preaching, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming? The two prophets of Revelation 12? And what will people do? They'll kill the prophets because we don't like the message. So we get rid of the messenger, but it doesn't change the message. <laughs> so he says, that's the way it's going to be with this coming of the Son of Man. Okay, so you got to be ready. You got to be ready. And then he goes on and he gives more indications about this whole idea. That, and by the way, here, let me, let me close. The, this taken away, keep in mind, the taken away is not to safety. The people in the flood who were taken away were taken to damnation. They were taken away to damnation. Then right after that story, he comes up with another one about people who are doing their daily chores. And uh, in that daily chores, he makes this comment. He says, um, where we? verse 40, There shall be two in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. The two shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, there's his absolute... The, in each case, one is taken, one's left, and remi I'll remind you, this is often viewed as a rapture passage. The context is not the rapture. The context is Jewish. It's dealing with the second coming, not his coming to the clouds. The context is being taken away to judgment and not listening to, uh, not listening to warnings. This isn't a rapture passage. This is when he comes at the second coming, some will be taken away to judgment. Others will be left to enter the kingdom. And so he makes it very clear that this is not to deal with them, that those people, the, it'll be a sudden, swift coming. So you got to be watching. you got to be ready. And this is to people in the tribulation. Watch, watch, watch. Now, by application, should we also be ready for the Lord's return? Yeah. Now, he's going to give you a third story. It's the thief. Well, he uses, Paul uses that same illustration talking about the suddenness of the rapture, the unpreparedness of the rapture. But they're not, they're not being identical in which coming that they're referring to, the rapture or the second coming. It's just that they use the same illustration. That the rapture could catch people unawares and off guard and some unprepared for it. That's true. We should be watching for the rapture. But for those people living and that's who he's talking to in this text, living in the tribulation. Watch, watch, watch. The king is coming. And he, when he comes to earth, don't give up. Just be loyal. And so he gives that, that warning, that heed. We'll pick up there next week.